listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Good morning, church. Good morning. So, um, on Friday, I had something embarrassing happen to me that I thought was going to prevent me from being able to speak here today. I, uh, I have this group of guys I play basketball with on Friday morning, and I took an elbow to the face, and I have a picture of it. It's uh, really disgusting. I, uh, it looks like a Botox problem. I, trust me, it was not. It looks like I was plumping a little bit there, and it didn't go so well. You can take that picture down. That's really scary, but um, thankfully, I'm, I'm feeling better now. And you know how they say you should see the other guy? I was the other guy, so it was not a, a real pretty situation there. Um, as we start, though, um, I just there's a, there's a lot of elements to this message today that were were personally convicting to me, and I want to say that up front because if you're challenged by what it is today, I want you to know that so was I as I was preparing it. I felt like it was sort of like getting a two by four across the head from from God as I was working on this message, and uh, if it happens with you as well, um, you know I, maybe that's good. I guess so. Just to let you know where I'm at with that. So I have this thought question for you as we begin, and that question is this, how would you describe your relationship with God? What is your relationship with God like? How strong or how weak is your relationship with God? Think about that for a moment. What is your relationship with God like? We're going to be looking at a passage today that sort of gives us three answers to that question. Maybe you're like the first potential answer to that question. You're here today and you're like, what relationship with God? I, I, I'm not a Christian. I, I'm not somebody that would describe myself as a believer or a follower of God. Maybe you're here because you're curious. You want to know more about it. Uh, maybe you're here because um, somebody made you come. Um, Maybe you're here because you feel like it's the right thing to do. seems like a good thing to do to go to church. Um, Or maybe you're here. We had a friend visiting us this week who said, yeah, I went to youth group when I was in high school because my friend told me that's where the hot girls were. So maybe there's other reasons that you're here today. But regardless, there's that first potential answer to this question, which is, you know, I'm not. There's no relationship. I'm not a follower of God. Then there's a second possible answer. And that second possible answer is, I am a Christian, but, and you might be this person, you might have accepted Christ as Savior, you would identify or describe yourself as a follower of God. However, there's some areas of your life that you struggle with wanting to give up control of. It's like there's a little throne inside your heart, and whatever's sitting, whoever's sitting on that throne is really in charge of your life. And you're doing everything you can to keep it you on that throne rather than God on that throne. And, and maybe some of the reason for that is that you're scared of what commitment might mean. You, you maybe are, are concerned about what your friends or relatives might think if I was that committed to giving up control of all of these areas of my life. You're the kind of person you know how to live, but you consistently fail to live up to what that standard is. And then there's a third possible answer to that question. Maybe that you're the one that can answer the question this way and say, that God is on that throne in your life. That yes, you've accepted Christ as Savior, but even more than that, you've said, God, I want you to be Lord of all the areas of my life. I'm willing to give up control and all these things that, that maybe in the past you wanted to have control of. 
And there's this love of God's word and God's instruction that you have that uh, really allows you to be able to think on his word, think on his instructions throughout each day. And you have this kind of peace or contentment that others don't understand. So there's those three possible answers to that question of what is your relationship with God like? And the passage that we look at today is going to uh, look at those answers and contrast them. So this, this sermon series has been on the book of Psalms, and a lot of what we've looked at in this sermon series are what I would call worship psalms, these uh, kinds of psalms that recognize God for who he is. And today we're going to be looking at a very different kind of psalm. This psalm is much more of a recognition of God's truth, so a, uh, a statement about things that are true about God and about his world world, and we'll see that. And it really is a reflection on the fact that the book of Psalms can be considered a wisdom book. So in this passage today, we are going to see God's wisdom. We're going to begin by reading uh, Psalm chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles here with you and you want to turn to that passage, you can. You know, it's really interesting when you're using an electronic device and you get a message that one of the members here in the congregation just posted something to Facebook. That is interesting. It was to mission men, Carlos. It's okay. And it was a word of God. It was okay. It was okay. (laughs) All righty. Let's take a look at this passage beginning, Psalm chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's just pray for a moment before we get into the sermon. God, we ask that as we look at your word today, that it would come alive, that we would understand it maybe in ways that we haven't understood it before, Lord, and that we would be convicted with the message that you had given to us through the psalmist, Lord. We ask you this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to do something that is somewhat different than what we do here often at at the mission, but we're going to be looking at this passage verse by verse. So I want to jump back to verse 1 and uh, look at it again. It starts with this word, blessed. It said, blessed is the man. And that word blessed, we love that word, right? You know, it's uh, every time somebody sneezes, we say, God bless you. Every politician finishes their speech up with, God bless America. You know, it's a, a word that, you know, has maybe all kinds of meanings to it, but in this passage, there's a specific meaning to it. When we see it in scripture, the word blessed means happy, and it carries with it this idea of being contented. So it's saying at this point, blessed is the man, or happy is the man, or contented is the man, uh, and then it's going to go on to describe who that person is. And then, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question, all right, it says man, does that just mean men or does it mean something different? Well, the word that's used here is, means more than just men. It would be related to this idea of a person who uh, believes or follows God. So what it's saying in this passage is that um, it's saying how blessed or how happy or how contented is the person, the man or woman who does, and then we're going to go on and look at what that is. And it begins with that description of it by describing three things that it's not. 
So it says, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So that's the first of the three not statements that we're going to see. Let's break that down a little bit so that we can understand it. There's two elements to it. First, when you look at the word counsel, it says, walks not in the counsel of the wicked. What's counsel? Counsel's advice. And so uh, what's being said here is that this advice is coming from those that are wicked. So what it's saying is that the person who is contented, who is blessed, does not get their advice from those who are wicked. And then there's a, a second meaning to it, though, I think that uh, can also apply in this situation. The word counsel can refer to a group of people who rule over or have power or sway over others. Counsel can then be those individuals who control the court of public opinion, those who influence and shape our culture today. In this perspective, I, I think the whole phrase actually makes more sense. So it begins with who walks not. So the idea of walking is to be in step with, to follow along with in the path of life. Uh, and then it talks about the council. The council of the wicked are those who shape culture, who post, uh, posi- put themselves in the position of being perceived as the all-knowing ones. They are the cultural elites. Those who tell us how to live, not necessarily directly, but by dint of the fact that they are the ones setting the standard of what we see and hear in the media that we consume. And then the word wicked. Wicked is just anything or anyone who is opposed to God. So what the psalmist is saying then in this passage is that if you want to be the, the, uh, content, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, uh, don't live your life in step with that cultural mainstream that is opposed to God. So this passage, this verse, this little phrase is challenging us as believers to be countercultural. To not follow along with where the world is at when the, what the world is doing is wicked. Talk about a challenging perspective for us. Then it goes on and gives a second uh, negative statement. It says, nor stands in the way of sinners. So again, it's saying, blessed is a man, contented is a man who doesn't do this. Who doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And I think to understand what that means by the way... Uh, of sinners, I think we need to really look at Matthew chapter seven. There's an interesting piece. This is at the uh, towards the latter part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is a famous sermon that Jesus gave. But we're going to look at just Matthew chapter seven, verses thirteen to fifteen. I should have them come up on the screen as well. In this passage, he says, "Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it enter by it are many." For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So this picture that he's giving uh, fits for the time period of the day. They might have been standing outside of Jerusalem, and they would have looked at, at ways that people would have entered the city. And there was these broad ways that were, uh, were easy ways to enter the city, and then what he called a narrow gate or a difficult way to enter the city. And uh, when we look at that passage in Psalm chapter 1, The, uh, the way of the sinner in, in uh, Psalm chapter 1 matches up with the easy way that's described in Matthew. And Matthew makes clear that the, the ultimate result of that way, that path that this person on, is destruction. But because it's the wide path, it's the easy way, there's lots of people doing it. And that, and that really makes sense to us, right? The reason that it is the easy path is because there are so many people doing it. It's a lot harder in our lives to, to go in a different direction than what everybody else is doing or going. Things are easier. 
when there seem to be a lot of people doing it the same way. I think there's more to this not statement, though, that's interesting, in that the author, through the work of the Holy Spirit, uses the word stand. I think it's interesting because he could have used a different word, right? Could have been the word could have been walk. Don't walk in the way of sinners. But he used the word stand, and I think he does it for a reason. It's, It's an action word, but not of the same kind of action that walking in that way would be. The standing person who's standing in this way that leads to destruction is essentially saying, um, I have not chosen to walk on this path, but I am going to hang out here because it looks like I'm taking this path. Or maybe I'm curious so I, what, what this path is. Or maybe I'm going to stand in this path because it makes me look like I fit in better. I, I really think when I, when I was studying this passage that this person is actually a follower of God who's not willing to distance themselves from the way of the world, the way of sinners that's being described here. And then there's a third not statement as well. It says, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And again, it's just another kind of individual saying, you're, you're uh, blessed as a man or happy as a man, contented as a person who's not doing this, not sitting in the seat of scorners or scoffers. And Proverbs 21, 24 gives us a great definition of what a scoffer is. I think I have that passage for us as well. Uh, It says, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. A scoffer then is someone who believes that they know what is best, sort of positions themselves without necessarily thinking about it, but positions themselves in the place of God. And... It can be a couple different ways, I was, as I was thinking about this. It's really two contrasting ways. There's a certain set of people in our society today that think, hey, how could anyone here in 21st century America, how could anyone be dumb enough to believe in God? We don't need God. That was something that was for the past when people were sort of mystical or magic or you know, believed in those kind of things. But we've grown beyond that. We don't need that anymore. And, and that's one kind of scoffer. And then there's a, another kind of scoffer that may be more uh, prevalent perhaps in some ways in, in a place like Redlands. And that's somebody who says, yeah, you know, I, I, I do believe that God exists. But then they go and they live their life as if God doesn't exist. That anything that he says really matters or makes a difference. Uh, they live their life in the way that, he, uh, in the way that they want to live their life. Uh, they live it like God is powerless or has no real say or sway or make any kind of statement on uh, how life should be lived on an everyday kind of basis. But both of those kinds of people are scoffers. They're people that are, are looking and saying, hey, we have the answers. We have a better way of looking at this. And, and God's word here says that we're not to sit in the seat of scoffers. The idea of sitting is sitting and being in agreement with them. It doesn't mean you don't have a relationship with those kind of people. It's The idea of sitting here, though, is to say, hey, we're, we're in this together. We're in agreement, and this is going to be how we live because I can agree with this person who's a scorner or a scoffer. And God's word here makes it clear that the person who wants to be blessed, who wants to be happy, who wants to be contented, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. But it doesn't just end with those three negatives. It goes on and begins to describe a contrast. And we see that starting in verse 2. And so verse 2 starts with the word but. And the word but has this idea of a significant contrast. But, and then it's going to go on and give two statements to describe what this person who's blessed and contented is like. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The word law there means the instruction of the Lord. 
and the, the word delight means that he finds his source of joy in it. So it's saying that the person who's contented, the person who's blessed, the person who is happy, finds their source of joy in the law and in the, in the instruction of the Lord. Amen. Is that you and I? I? I read that and was like, whoa, that's convicting of me. Do I find my source of joy in the instruction of the Lord? Amen. Then there's a second aspect of this uh, as well, a second contrast. And it says, and on his law... He meditates day and night. All the word meditates means is, that is to reflect on it, to think on it. Um, as I was preparing this message, this is just a good example of this. So I probably started reading this passage probably three weeks ago or so. And, uh, and I read through it a few times. And we tried to think about what it is that God's trying to say to me through this passage. And that would come back to me at different times throughout the day. It wasn't just in that moment that I was reading. It was other times when I was doing, you know, mowing the lawn or doing something at work or whatever. I would reflect back on this passage and what it meant. That's what God means by meditation. To reflect on it, to think on his word, and to do so frequently, regularly, as part of our everyday life. I think sometimes with the word meditation, we get this idea that you have to be sitting cross-legged and making um sounds and uh, repeating the same phrases over and over again. And, And that's not what it means here. It means this whole idea of thinking on, reflecting on, and trying to understand what it is that God's sharing and saying uh, through his word. Um. Beginning in verse 3, though, he says, this is the result of that. When you do this, when you delight in my, in my law and my word, and when you, uh, when you are meditating on it frequently, when you're reflecting on it often, it's, it gives on a description of what happens in that situation. It says in verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. So he uses this poetic description that uh, describes a sense of flourishing, right? This is something that's successful, that's going well, that, that is producing fruit. It, <clears throat> and it's actually a picture that we can understand well. The geography of our region here in Southern California is actually very much like what the Holy Land is. So when you think about areas in Southern California where we have sources of water, oftentimes it's green surrounding that area and then brown out beyond it, Right? And a couple weeks ago, we were driving back up from San Diego, and uh, traffic was horrible. GPS has us get off in Rainbow. Anyone know where Rainbow is? And we had to follow along um, Rice Canyon Road, which sort of ran parallel to the uh, 15, trying to avoid traffic. And it was amazing, and it was an exact picture of this passage. I think I have pictures of it here. But these are pictures of what this road that we drove on, Rice Canyon Road. Clearly, there's a source of water that allowed these trees to thrive. They're flourishing. They were going to produce fruit because of where they're at. This is what the Bible is describing that we are like uh, when we are that person who's delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. We are like this tree that's planted in this wonderful location, has everything that we need to produce fruit and to not wither. And that's not the only description that he says. He goes on and says, in all that he does, he prospers. So he moves from this poetic language to a much more literal statement where he says, in all that he does, he prospers. If you're like me and good Americans, we're like prospering. Yes, you know, this sounds great. And, uh, you know, the sort of the wealth gospel message, if I do what God says, I'm going to be wealthy, right? That's what it seems like it says. 
Unfortunately, that's not what the word prosper means in this situation. Uh, what it's meaning in this situation is this idea uh, literally to carry through. So the word prosper there means to carry through. So it carries with it this idea that um, he brings it to maturity or to fruition. So then all he does, he brings it to maturity or to fruition. So yes, it's a kind of flourishing. Yes, it's a kind of way of producing fruit. But this fruit that he's producing uh, is, is a sense of being truly prosperous spiritually or maybe even more than spiritually, but definitely from a spiritual perspective. And then we move on to verse 4. And the psalmist there is going to give this contrast. So he's, he's talked about this, the individual who delights in God's word of being the one who flourishes. And then he looks at and says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Well, the word chaff is not a word that we use in today's world uh, very much. But you have to understand how uh, grain was harvested in this time period to really understand what happened with it. So uh, after the grain grew in a field, they would come along with a sickle and cut it down. And uh, it would be harvested at that point. It would be a stalk, and it would have uh, the grain on the top of that stalk. Could be wheat, could be uh, oats, and so on, uh, different grains that they would have there. And uh, they would take that grain after it had dried, uh, and they would toss it in the air called winnowing. And in that process of winnowing, I think I have a picture of it here. In that process of winnowing, the, the chaff would, would blow away. So what happens is the grain of seed has a little shell around the exterior of it. It's a, a casing that would have protected it during its growth, perhaps, would have, had, uh, would have been part of it. But it's an inedible part of it. It's useless. It's worthless. And when they would toss it in the air, it would be light. It would blow away. And, uh, and that's the picture that God's given of the wicked. He's that I, I'm going to separate it out in the chaff. The wicked part is going to blow away. It's utterly annihilated. It's useless. It's, it's uh, of no value at all as it's being moved on. I thought it was interesting with, with the use of that expression, though, because there's another part of that, that grain that's uh, separated in this process. And so when it's tossed in the air and so on, there's, and you can sort of see it there, there would be the straw. That would be the, the stalk of the uh, grain. And that actually is separated from the grain in this process as well. It, but it would be heavy, it would fall out, and it had use. Yes, it wasn't going to feed people, but it would be used in their care of their livestock. And so when God, through the psalmist, uses the word chaff, he's separating it from something that has any use at all, like the, gra- like the straw, and separating it from the good, which is the grain, and says the chaff is utterly useless, is to be totally annihilated, it's to be blown away, it's of no value. Uh, and so that's what uh, is being described there as being uh, the chaff. I think it's interesting, too, with it, because when that grain is growing, the part of it you see is actually the part that becomes the chaff. It's the, the outside exterior of it that's growing uh, over that uh, shell of the, uh, of the kernel of the, of the grain uh, that's there. And again, using that same expression, when you looked a few months before the harvest, that's the part that you saw. You saw the part that was deemed to be wicked or, or um, useless at a later point. And yet that's the picture that's being described in this passage. And then he goes on in verse 5, and he says this, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. So he begins with that word, therefore. So he's referring again back to the chaff. Because of this thing I've just described to you about the chaff, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Um, 
when he talks about standing in the judgment, it's a sense that at the moment of conviction of the of judgment at that moment, rather than being able to stand and being said, hey, you're okay, you're, there's no sentence against you, the, the weight of guilt is so great that this person can't stand in that environment. They, are, they have to take their sentence and go directly to their punishment. So uh, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Like that idea of the chaff being blown away, it's the same sense that those that are wicked are not able to be part of what God calls the congregation of the righteous. And there's a reason for that, and we see that in verse 6. It's not because it's sort of this whimsical thing that God wants to do. He's mean. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want uh, to allow people to be with him or whatever the reason for it might be. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked, the way of the wicked will perish. So two things that are there in that passage, right? He knows the way of the righteous, so he recognizes the way of the righteous. It's part of what he recognizes, and then the way of the wicked will perish, so there's, there's an ultimate conclusion and result to it because of God being who he is, being a just God. Let's go back and just think about our question a little bit that we began with, this whole idea of where are you at in your walk with God? Are, are you the kind of individual who's, who's uh, listening to the counsel of the wicked? Are you so inclined to be walking in step with those who are giving advice that's counter to the advice that God would want us to be having? Are you standing in the way of sinners? Are you, are you so set on being this path that leads the wrong direction and not committed to going towards that narrow gate that you're not able to um, recognize where you're at in that process or, or the contrast to these questions, are you in a place where your source of joy, your source of delight is in the instruction of the Lord? Are you at a place where you are, are looking at that instruction and thinking and reflecting on that instruction from the Lord regularly? It just becomes part of who you are in everyday life. I would just challenge you as we, as we close here today if you were the first answer to that question and you don't have a relationship with God, today could be the day where that begins in your life. You may have, the, the part of that might have gotten you the most in this message is that whole sense of, I have an anxiousness. I have, I, I'm not content. I don't understand. I'm, this life frustrates me in some ways that are deep and significant. And maybe that's you. And, and maybe the reason for that is because you don't have that relationship with God. Today could be the day where that happens for you. Uh, God's made a, a promise to us, a commitment to us, that when we accept the work of his son on the cross, our relationship with God is restored. And in that process of restoration, that's where we begin to have that relationship that's built on contentment, that whole sense of happiness, the sense of being a blessed individual. And uh, if you're here today and haven't done that before, all it means is that you recognize that, yes, I'm a sinner. I, I, I do bad things. We all are like that. And then that God can't be in relationship with you when you're in that condition, but that he's made a way through Christ where that relationship can be restored. So all you do is you accept the work that Christ has done on the cross. His death on the cross makes possible that restoration of that relationship. So if that's you today, I just would ask, I'd encourage you to make that commitment, to pray that prayer to God. Or, or maybe you're here today and you're that second person. You're the Christian but the one that's struggling with giving up portions of your life, of letting 
God's word truly impact all the areas of your life, then I would challenge you today, make that the day where you're like, God, I want you to be Lord of my life. I give you these areas that I've been so reluctant to give up, that I've been scared to give up in the past because I wanted to have control over them. And then maybe you're the third person and praise God that you are. You're delighting in his word. I just would encourage you, be a blessing to others in that process as well. I'm gonna close right now in a word of prayer and then we're gonna go into the Lord's Supper. So let me pray and then we'll talk about that. God, we thank you for your word and uh, Lord, it was so convicting to me. I wanna be someone who delights in your instruction, Lord. I wanna meditate regularly. I wanna think regularly about your word and its truth and its impact on the world and try to understand it uh, for myself, Lord. Help me to be that individual. Help each one of us to be that individual here today. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. The first Sunday of each month, our church uh, makes it a habit uh, of celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And it uh, comes from Scripture in that Jesus Christ in the, the evening that he was, uh, uh, where he, he was uh, given over to the Romans uh, by Judas Iscariot, in that evening he met with his disciples and he knew what was coming. He knew that his death was imminent on the cross. And he did what is called the Last Supper with his disciples. And in that, as they finished up the regular portion of food, he uh, designated two, two uh, pieces for us that we use today to remember his death on the cross. And the first part of that is the bread, is a wafer. And he said, this represents my body. So to understand what that really means, God gave up his life. Jesus Christ gave up his, his life and glory in heaven with God and took on a body, took on the form of a man to come to earth. That's the ultimate example of slumming, all right? This, this, he gave up what was rightfully his to become a man and to live life like we live life. And then the second element of the Lord's Supper, uh, he does after that, and it's the cup. And he says, this cup is a representation of my blood that's shed. So the, in the Old Testament, in the time period that the uh, uh, Jewish people were, there was a process of sacrifice that allowed their sins to be covered to recognize God's work in forgiving their sins. And so just like that, Christ is, is telling them that his death on the cross, his shedding of his blood, allows our sins, all of our sins, to be forgiven because it meets that price that God needed to have paid. So in a moment, uh, you'll be invited. There's two stations here at the front. You'll be invited to come forward. I would just ask if you're a believer, uh, if you're a follower of God, a, a believer in the work of Christ, this table is open to you. We'd encourage you to be part of it. There's a, a great fellowship that happens in that. If you're here today and you're not a follower of God, I just ask you not to participate. That's not, it's not the, the worst thing in the world. It, 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 we'd rather have this uh, be what it's truly for, and that's for communion of those that are, are believers or followers of God. So uh, let me pray and just thank God for these elements and for what Christ has done for us on our behalf. God, we thank you for this reminder of the fact that you gave up so much in glory to come to earth and be like one of us. And then that you died on that cross and shed your blood on our behalf, Lord, and made possible through that the forgiveness of sins and the relationship with God. Thank you for that. We love you and thank you for providing uh, for us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.
you are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.